So this year, I decided that uh, I was going to get a new translation of the Bible to do my uh, read through the Bible in a year. And I realized at about 6.30 that I'd done all my study in this. And so uh, I'm not reading from the NASB tonight. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So let me explain just kind of how that works. Uh, Sunday and next week, I'll be back in the NASB. So sorry for any confusion, but I didn't think that I could uh, switch gears in my brain from all the study I've done from this version. So the NASB is what's called a formal version, which would be a word-for-word -word version, where it is, uh, without using the interlinear, it is the closest to the actual translation of the Bible. Uh, so then there's another uh, translational uh, type called the dynamic uh, translation, and that would be a word-for-word, -word, like the NIV or the uh, New Living Translation. This translation that I'm reading through tonight, uh, it, it, the Christian Standard Version, is called an optimal version. And what it does is where it can translate word for word, and it's not choppy in plain English, it does that where it can't translate word for word, it uses that thought for thought so it's easier to read. So it's a combination of, let's say, the NASB and the New Living Translation. So I, I hope not to throw anybody uh, off with that. I'll be back to the NASB next week, but it was too late for me to change because once I, once I study and get started, it'd probably trip me up a little bit. So now that you know that, you're not looking at me like, what is he talking about? What is, why is he reading a different version? <laughs> so, so, uh, um, Tom covered the first 11 verses, which are, which are important. It's uh, obviously the beginning and um, you know, how the world was created. It's where a lot of, uh, especially uh, Genesis 1, uh, 1, 2, and 3 is where a lot of uh, argument happens about the things that are happening in our day and age, and it uh, goes forward with uh, genealogies and the flood and the Babel. Uh, all those things are super important foundationally in the Bible. Uh, as we go on to this section, these, uh, this is important too because it's also a beginning. This is where God calls Abraham. And He calls him from where he's at to where he's going. And it's important to know that this is uh, uh, the first really in-depth story about uh, how God calls people and He's faithful even in uh, people's uh, folly, uh, um, uh, folly and trial and that sort of stuff. So as we look at that and we think about uh, the, the blueprint that we have uh, set out in the church, you, you'll, uh, you'll see, I mean, talk about these things because Abraham is, I mean, Abram, it starts with Abram. Uh, he's, he's the church father, but as we look at him, we also see, we see his faithfulness and it's even recounted in Hebrews 11. But we also see a man who's uh, flawed. And so as, as we go forward, uh, um, just know that we see God being patient with humankind, which is uh, supremely important if uh, you're a human on earth. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Abram, Go out from the land uh, of, your, uh, of your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make, uh, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those uh, who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. And Abram was 75 years old, and he left Haran. And he took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they sent out for the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, 
Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the oak of uh, Meribah, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram journeyed by the stages, uh, by stages to the Negev. So in that first section, um, the, the genealogy of how he got there was uh, in verse 11, uh, Terah, uh, his father. But uh, just a couple things to note in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from the land of your relatives and your father's house and the land that I will show you. So, uh, Abram does not quite do that as you get further down because he takes with him Lot. Um, I don't think that I would say that uh, since he's married, you know, when you're married, you become one flesh that a Sarai would uh, be somebody who would go with him anyway because they are married. Uh, but he says, go out from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house. Well, he lingered there uh, a while until his father died, and then he took Lot with him. So already in the call that Abram has, you see him wait and then not exactly follow instructions. So um, I think it's important to note that since God called him out, God doesn't say, well, I called you out and I'm going to make promises, but since you got, got it wrong, I'm going to stop giving you my promises. Um, I don't think that that should give us license to when it's clear that we should do something from God, that it gives us license to not follow directions. That would just be sinful. But it is reassuring that when God is clear and we're not, or at this time I think Abram's probably having trouble letting go of the past, his family, which makes sense, God doesn't just say, yeah, you didn't get it right, you're out. That's comforting to me because uh, I think myself and probably pretty much everybody in the room can think of a time when God told you to do something and you're like, I don't know how easy that's going to be. So uh, the other thing about that is uh, in these first three verses, as God calls Abram out, the important thing, uh, the other important thing to note is that this is God calling and giving to Abram. Abram isn't achieving this because of anything that he does. This is given by God. And I think one of the cool things about Abram is you see him go back and forth a little bit. However, what you do see is that God is faithful and He's giving him, giving Abram all these things. Because it says in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So, one of the important things, like I said, it gives Abram from the beginning that this is not going to be Abram working from strength to strength or work to work. This is going to be Abram working from faith to faith because God is clear. I am giving this to you. You're not working for it. It's from faith to faith. So as uh, he goes on, uh, he, he gives him these promises. And then uh, Lot went with him, of course. Uh, verse 4, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Verse 5, 
He took Sarai, uh, he took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram pressed, passed through the land and the site of Shechem and the oak of Morah at the time of the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he, Abram, built an offer there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now this is one of the cool things that, that every time you see, pretty much every time you see Abram interact with the Lord, he builds an altar. He builds an altar so he can worship. He puts a visual sign up there, and I think it's probably as a human thing as worship, as an offering. I think that probably it's also good that he does that so other people, the other people in the land, uh, can see that he is a worshiper of God. They can see clearly that Abram practices faith and has a real live relationship with God. So uh, I think it's important. One of the things that Abram does, no matter what's going on, is he keeps coming back to this building an altar and worship, which I, I think is really cool. Because he does it again in verse 8, chapter 12. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel, which is uh, Bethel means house of God. And then he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord there, and he called on the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. So, uh, again, it's really cool. Twice in, in this one chapter, back to back, as Abram moves, he builds, uh, uh, he builds uh, an altar to worship the Lord. And then if we look, uh, going on in verse 10, here's where it starts to get interesting. <laughs> there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. And he was about to enter Egypt. And he said to his wife, Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say that the, uh, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but let you live. Please say that she is my sister, so... Uh, uh, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and a Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household, and he treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds and male and female donkeys and male and female slaves and camels. And the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with the severe plagues because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her as my wife. Now here's your wife. Now take her and go. And Pharaoh gave his men orders to take him out and sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So... Um, First, one of the first things that we see here now that Abram has moved away is there's a test of circumstances. The circumstances are that uh, there's a famine, so they have to move where they can get food because they've already got an assembly of animals and people with them. And uh, so when he went out of Egypt, and I don't know... Um, 
it, it, in verse 11, it's really comp complimentary that he recognizes that his wife is a beautiful woman. And so he says, hey, you're really pretty, um, but they're going to take you away from me because you're pretty and give you to the Pharaoh. So um, when you go into the court of the Pharaoh, you become the Pharaoh's wife or concubine. I don't know how else to not put this in modern terms, but he's kind of pimping out his wife for his own safety. This is bad. This is a bad thing that he's doing because he's trying to save his own skin by using his wife, right? So here, so so that plays out pretty poorly, right? But but the heart of the matter is that God has given promises to Abram, and Abram believed them. But when it comes to the practical playing out of this, I feel like Abram had a, a falling down here. If he believes the promise. He should be able to go into Egypt with his wife, saying, she is my wife, understanding that God is going to continue his promise and he's going to work out that promise in his life. But on the human side, he can't see that that's the case. So you can see that there's a disconnect or cognitive dissonance, however you want to call that, between what Abraham believed and how he works it out. And I think it's important to note that in a lot of the details of our lives that I know that in my life this has happened over and over again where you believe what God's going to do, but when it gets down to the details of the day, you start worrying and thinking, well, I'm going to have to take action. God's not working in this or whatever. So we can understand why maybe Abram would have done that. Just because we understand that doesn't mean that we should act in such a way or validate what Abram did. It means that we should look at this and go, okay, look, if I truly believe what God said about my purpose in my life and in the Scripture... I've got to let him have control of the day-to-day -day things in, in life. And that's what Abram failed to do in this situation here. I ended up holding that for a really long time, huh? So, <laughs> so what Abram was afraid of came to fruition, right? They recognize she's pretty. This is my sister. She gets taken into the court. And... Uh, Abram got treated well because of that, because he got donkeys and camels and slaves. And so Abram benefited even though it wasn't a great situation for Sarai. But the Lord struck, this is verse 17, Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Adam's wife Sarai. And Pharaoh sent for Abraham and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Now, it, it, it's interesting about uh, uh, the, the texts here. It, it's kind of interesting what's not there. The question is, and I don't have an answer, how did Pharaoh understand that this is what happened? I, I, I guess, in my mind, I would think that somehow that a, God sent a messenger or the Holy Spirit or something, we don't know, it doesn't say, but somehow... Pharaoh got the truth about that. I'm going to say as a blanket statement, it probably came from God, whatever it was. And he realized, uh-oh, <laughs> dude's lied to me. So he calls him to him, and uh, the Pharaoh says, uh, why didn't you say she, she's my sister? And I took her as my wife. Now here's your wife, take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave his men orders uh, about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting there, and and sometimes when people read the Old Testament 
Testament narrative, it bothers them because there's not, uh, this is just the telling of a story. And in the Hebrew, they tell the story. So we like stories that have a lot of details. Why did this happen? What, what happened? It's just telling the, the main line story. But one of the things that kind of isn't said, but he said, uh, take, his, take, take her stuff and go. And they went away with his wife and all that he had. It would seem to me there, it's not inferred or said, but it would seem to me that everything that he acquired because the Pharaoh thought that, uh, that Sarai was his sister, he got to take with him. So somehow, he prospered in his folly. Again, not a great thing to think that's going to happen. This is God working in Abram's life. Uh, I don't know if that's 100% true. That's kind of me thinking through the narrative and everything that Abram has. So as far as that goes, I wouldn't take that... <laughs> too seriously but it, it would seem that way and it's kind of interesting that that's how it happens so uh he gets free of he gets free of egypt uh and then uh chapter 13 abram went up from egypt to the negev and he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him and abram was very rich in livestock silver and gold and he went by uh by stages from the negev to bethel and to the place between Bethel and I, where his tent was uh, formerly had been, to the site where he had built an altar, and Abram called on the name of the Lord, uh, and all, Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of, of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between our her my herdsmen and your herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't, it, isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me, and if you go left... I will go right to the right, and if you go to right, I will go to the left. So, when you see there through verse nine, there um, they got a they have a big traveling thing. They had to move in stages. But the first thing uh, that's cool is he came back, and there's an altar that he'd already built. I think it's kind of cool for us to look back on the things that God has done in our lives and give thanks and revisit that and maybe be uh, rejuvenated in the Spirit for what's, what's going forward. It's not like we necessarily have uh, altars that we've built at our house or anything, but you may have a picture, you may have a journal, you may have a story. I think it's just cool that he came back to a place where he was at and he worshipped the Lord where he'd worshipped before. And so um, they're moving in stages and obviously the land can't support everybody. So he has this conversation with Lot. And uh, he just says, hey, if you go one way, I'll go the other way. Because the best thing is, if you're living in the same spot, uh, there's some wisdom in here, I think. And I think probably it comes from his worship. Um, they're getting too close. There's quarreling. And sometimes the best thing to do in relationship is get a little space so things work, right? If there's too many people in the house, uh, sometimes it, it, it just works. So there's some wisdom in getting apart so they have room for the land and their livestock. So Abram, uh, Abram gives, gives him this, says, hey, whatever way you want to go, I'll go the other way. And so uh, 
What happens after that is, uh, verse 10, Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was well watered and everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself, and Lot journeyed eastward, so they were separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now, when the men of Sodom, uh, now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. And after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look, from this place where you are, look north and south and east and west, and I will give you, uh, uh, give you your offering forever in the land that you see. I give you offspring uh, forever in the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, and then your offspring, uh, then your offspring could be counted. Could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, and I will give it give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went near the uh, oaks of Moreh at Hebron, where he built the altar to the Lord. So uh, it's interesting, uh, again, in what's, what's not said. You see that Abram is uh, building an altar and he's talking to the Lord before he makes decisions. What you see Lot do is he looks around and he looks for what looks good. This is not necessarily always a bad thing, right? But there's no mention, again, this is not in the narrative, there's no mention that Lot prays or builds an altar or has any kind of relationship with God in his decision-making. That isn't, that isn't there, and it's uh, just kind of conspicuously gone. Well, you see Abram making lots of decisions and things with continual off, continual offering, I don't think that that's a mistake. So you see Lot taking a look around, and he moves down by Sodom and Gomorrah. You're going to see, you're going to see later on, and you probably already know the story that this is going to work out poorly. But at the same time, I just like to point out the difference between what you see happening in Abram's life, where he's building an altar, he has a relationship with the Lord, the Lord is talking to him. You don't see that in uh, that same thing in Lot's life, and it may be why things work out the way they do for Lot and the way they work out for Abram. And so then, uh, after Lot separated for him, uh, from Abram, uh, the Lord then again is uh, talking to Abram, and he tells him to look in every direction, and, and take a walk. Your offspring is going to be multiple. And the thing I like about this is over and over again that you see the Lord reminding Abram of the promise that he, that he made. The thing that I think is kind of important for us to remember in this is that uh, over the course of this, there's, uh, as we read it and look at it now in, uh, uh, as we're reading the Bible, I don't know how far these are. It doesn't have a timeline. There's no specific timeline when these things happened. But there's a lot of life going on between each one of these times. So there's a lot of working and living and just grinding through the, the, the details of day to day. So uh, I know that it says uh, earlier in verse 12 that he's 75 years old. When we see God talk again in uh, I think it's chapter 15 coming up next week, um, Abram's 99 years old. So we see this in a very condensed fashion because it's not 
uh, it only has the big details of their lives. A lot has happened. So when, when you see um, Abram talking with God and building the altar, you might, get the, you might get the impression that Abram and God are talking all the time and this is all unfolding very quickly. This is over the period of about 25 years. So if you look at your life, you might go a number of years before you have a really powerful, really amazing experience with God. There might be some desert times in there where it just seems like you're grinding out life and grinding out life and grinding out life. So as we look at the story, uh, the narrative here, Abraham's, uh, Abram's life, we also want to be reminded that, hey, it's cool that he keeps going back to this, but he's not having these miraculous conversations with God all the time. Maybe in his day-to-day life he had great prayer and that sort of thing, but don't get the idea that Wow, God was showing up for Abram all the time and it was just happening all the time. Abram had a lot of times where God didn't show up where it was recorded. Not that it wasn't any less spectacular, but didn't happen over the course of just a condensed condensed time. I think that's important for us to remember because sometimes as we look at the timeline of the Bible, we think, wow, these guys just had it all the time with God and it was always pretty good. And There was a lot of life just like ours where you're just grinding it out day by day, the details of the day. So, I just thought that that was a good reminder. So, as we go on to chapter 14, uh, this is uh, pretty cool how it all works out. And there's just a lot of, I'm just going to read through this and not say much about it, but Genesis 14 starts with, In those days, King uh, Ameraphil of Shinar, King uh, Arak uh, of... uh, of Elser and King Caterleomer uh, of Elam and King Tehel of Goim waged war against King Bara of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, and King Sinab of Admah, and King uh, uh, Shember of uh, Zimboi, and was uh, as was the king of Bela, that is Zoar. I'm glad they don't name kids like this anymore. These are. <laughs> Except maybe, maybe Cater Leomer, that'd be pretty good. <laughs> you can actually say that one. Anyway, uh, all of these came as allies to uh, uh, the Sidon Valley, that is the Dead Sea, where they were sub- subject to Cater Leomer for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Cater Leomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated uh, the Rephaim and uh, Erith Camorah and the Zunim and Ham and Enum and Shavakratim, and uh, the Horatites and uh, in the mountains of Seir, as far as Ephraim by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade Elam Mesfat, that is Kesh, uh, Kadesh, and they defeated the whole uh, territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in uh, uh, Hazanon uh, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, Admah, and the king of Zelem, the king of Bala, that is Zeor, went up and lined up uh, for battle in the Siddim Valley against King Caterleomer of Elam, King Tela of Goim, King Aphorel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elsiar, four kings against five. Now the Siddim Valley was contained, uh, contained many uh, asphalt, pits and uh, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled some fell into them and put uh, and the rest fled to the mountains the four king took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their food and went on 
And they also took Abram's nephew Lot in his possession, for he was living in Sodom. And they went on. So just uh, um, kind of a lot happened there. There's a lot of kings and stuff. And, and as you look at this in the narrative, uh, I think that um, we might think about this as a huge battle like we see on TV. This is not necessarily that size and scope. Like we're going to see in a little bit that Abraham three, had 300 guys. So it's not thousands and thousands of guys. It's hundreds and hundreds of guys. And the interesting thing that, that I looked at is that um, the guys who were in the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah, where they lived, they didn't know the terrain. It seems like they weren't prepared for war at all. If you live somewhere and you're fighting there, you would think that your troops would know the area and they would know that there's tar pits and they wouldn't fall in, right? If you know where you're... Um, living like just think about if somebody from the desert came to the mountains and was trying to invade here I mean how much time do we all spend in the mountains you'd think you'd have some idea of what's going on up there right I just found that uh, an interesting detail so in verse 13 one of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew who lived near the oaks belonging to uh, Marme uh, the Amorite, the brother of Eshol and the brother of Anar, uh, they were bound by treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled and he assembled his trained men, born out of his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobrah, the north, in Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods as well as uh, the women and the other people. What's, uh, what, what caught me, and I, I don't remember um, this verse 13, 14 at all much from when I studied this out before. This, this really caught me that when he found out that, he, that Lot had been captured, uh, he took his own men who were uh, born in his household. So even though this isn't a huge battle like I was talking about, his stuff must have been pretty big, right? If you have 318 trained guys that are born in your household, and that's pretty big household, right? So uh, it's Abram's stuff is bigger than I thought. The other thing that I thought about is um, when you think about uh, this whole deal, they were born in his household and they were trained. Abram trained guys to be ready for conflict. And it never struck me before when I read this that Abram was prepared for this. He didn't use it all the time. This is the only time that, that the Bible at least shows us that he did that. But, it, but it's interesting. There's a, there's a pastor in Denver that has, uh, has tattooed on him. It says, uh, if you want peace, prepare for war. I don't know if that's a biblical concept. I don't know anything like that, uh, if it is anything like that. But it almost seems like, hey, look, Ab Abram was ready for whatever came his way. And the other thing is that these guys were trained that means that he was a leader. If you have 318 guys that are following you, you're a leader. You've got to be a leader. I mean, it's, it's hard to have that many people in your employment or that many people that you can train up. So he had to have some effectiveness in, as a leader. I never noticed that before. It doesn't say that in a narrative. But if you're managing 318 people or, or, or directing 318 soldiers, you've got some leadership skills, <laughs> leadership skills that people will follow. 
And, and they must follow him because if you look at what comes on uh, after that in verse uh, 17, it says, after Abram returned, well, they defeated the guys and they, uh, they got all that stuff back. So obviously, uh, not only were these guys, uh, as a leader, not only was Abram able to train these guys, but he was able to execute and bring back everything that he wanted. So that is part of the leadership thing that I think is good. But what happened after that is uh, in verse 17, Abram returned from defeating Caterleomer and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in Shiva, the valley that is a king's valley. And so after the battle's over, usually there's some sort of reconciliation. They, uh, you know, like even after you think about World War II, there's uh, all kinds of stuff that happened there. So same sort of thing. Um, so uh, now in 18, we see Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was, a, he was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God the Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What's interesting about that, if you look at Melchizedek, Melchizedek, there is a number of theories about uh, who he is, he just kind of comes out of nowhere. He's mentioned again in Hebrews. Um, I, th I think the most, uh, without going into all four, I think the most common two are that he is a type of Jesus. Uh, and when you hear type in the Bible, it means that it's uh, something that just gives you uh, a reminder or a look forward to who Jesus is. Or he is the actual pre-incarnate Jesus in this role to... Um, speak to Abram and give us this story. My personal feeling is that um, this is a narrative, and to this point, it's mostly history. And so there are no. I don't feel like it's it's a type. I feel like based on my studies that this is the actual pre-incarnate Christ. Um, you would have to do the study and come to that conclusion yourself because it doesn't seem like the narrative lends itself to a type. This is an actual story about an actual event. So that's why I think that. You'll have to do your own homework and see what you uh, feel about that. But uh, uh, there's lots of cool stuff. It's just a cool deal. Because what happens is um, he comes out with bread and wine. And he was a priest of the... God Most High. So the reason why I think that is, okay, bread and wine, what do you think about? The Lord's Supper. You think about Jesus instituting the first Lord's Supper um, before His communion. And, and then afterwards, you know, every Sunday we talk about, uh, Paul says, this I got from the Lord, and you know, this is my body, this is my blood. So he comes out with bread and wine and gives it to Abram, and uh, he was a priest of the God Most High. Well, if you think about it, Jesus prophet, priest, and king. So he, Jesus is a priest, right? So he is giving this to Abram just like he would have given the Last Supper or something to, uh, to, to the disciples, which is just a cool, cool picture. And he said to him, Abram is blessed by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, who has handed over his enemies to you, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So the thing that I want to point out there is that, again, just like from the beginning, when God calls Abram out, and he says, I am going to bless you, um, we want to make sure that in our doctrine, we realize that James, you know, like in James it says, uh, show me your faith by your works, and James says, show me your uh, 
show me your works by your faith or show me your faith. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, faith and works, basically. I, I won't go there. Uh, so uh, what we want to make sure in our doctrine that we understand that Abram was handed this because God wanted to hand it to him. Abram had faith. And even though you see Abram as a leader take initiative and he's prepared and he goes and does these things, <clears throat> unless the victory was granted by the Lord, no matter what kind of a good leader he was, he wouldn't have got it. So each one of us has responsibility to walk in our faith, to use our talents and abilities, to use the gifts that God has given us around him, but all that is God-given. So I, I, I think that we see Abram taking responsibility for the things that God has given him, but we're reminded here again that Abram was given these things by God. It's a gift from God. Abram did his part, but it was all given by God. And then, and then you see Abram give the first tithe of the Bible. He gave a tenth of everything. And that's just important too because, hey look, he has an encounter with God and he's moved by this encounter to, to give back, to give praise and honor to God. In verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions upon yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. And I will take nothing except for what the servants have eaten. But for this, uh, but as for this share of the men who came with me, Anar, Ehel, Moray, they can take their share. So after he gives a tenth of everything, the king of Sodom wants to get his stuff back. And, and what uh, he says, I want the people, you can have the stuff. But what Abram says, I mean, and, and you'd have to think, I, I mean, if they're talking about that, the king must be bargaining. It must have value, right? And so there's a conflict here. You know, we look at Abram and he says, tell me you that, tell the Pharaoh that you're my sister. And we see him, what I see here is actually another conflict because, uh, hey, he could be even richer. I could leave these certain people behind and I could get a lot of stuff. But Abram in this triumphs in his faith because he goes back to his faith. Look, I raised my hand to the Lord and said, I'm not going to take anything so nobody else can come in and say, oh, the Lord didn't do all that in Abram's life. Somebody else gave it to him because the king gave him a whole bunch of possessions. I think that Abram has learned from maybe Egypt or you just see him exercising his faith here because although it just kind of, it's very quick, it's very quick here in the text, it's a, you know, who of us wouldn't look at a bunch of free stuff that would make you even rich or make you rich or even richer and go, yeah, I could use not having any bills. You know, I could use a trip to Disney, you know, you know, whatever it is. So, so I think that Abram does a really good thing here by exercising his faith and understanding where everything comes from. He doesn't need this because God has given it to him and he says, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that God has made me what I am, not another man. That, that's important. So next week we'll go on with uh, chapter 15. It gets cool. We'll talk about covenant, which is a really cool thing. 
And uh, so uh, as you read ahead, I'm going to cover chapters 15 and 16 next week if you want to read ahead. Um, it won't go quite as quickly as this week because I want to talk a little bit about uh, covenant, but uh, it's uh, getting back into Genesis has been a cool study for me. I hope you guys have been studying along as we've been going through it because it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So uh, let me pray. Father God, I just uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be in your word, to uh, just enjoy what you're teaching me, Lord, and uh, just enjoy the new things that I see. Uh, I'm reminded again that uh, your word is living and active. Uh, it, it's new every day. Uh, I've discovered that in just some of the verses, Lord. Uh, I pray that um, for me personally and also for everybody in here that, uh, uh, that we learn from um, uh, Abraham, uh, Abram's follies and that uh, we're encouraged by his triumphs to um, triumph even more. Lord, that we would just uh, through all that look at you and thank you for the promise that you gave to him and each one of us as believers that we would uh, day by day uh, work through everything that we have and uh, just be thankful for the promise and uh, faithful each day. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 